coming up now on this very program. Greek Army captures key to Allen. Sinclair C5, cult favourite or piece of crap? And London's underground is born. And in sport, David Gower marries Puffin. Those are the headlines. Now punch me in the face. News Bang, bringing truth to the masses, one nugget at a time. A night to see, c'est 1941. The Greco-Italian War spilled over into Albania today as Greek forces captured the strategically important Klisura Pass. The pass, which is located in a completely different country, was described by one eyewitness as a narrow gorge and surrounded by hills. The Italians, who had previously invaded France, British Somaliland and Egypt, apparently thinking it was an all-you-can-invade buffet, were left reeling from the unexpected Greek counterattack. The war began when Mussolini issued an ultimatum to Greece, demanding they hand over their olives and feta cheese. Greek Prime Minister Dimitri Fetachisis responded with a resounding oxy, which means no in Italian. The Greeks then launched a counter-offensive so successful that even their own generals were surprised. General Nico Papadopoulos said, We just kept pushing them back with our tanks and souvlaki until we reached the Kelsaya Gorge. By then their morale was in tatters. Or polenta. The Italians have vowed to retake the pass, but admit they're waiting for directions from Rome. In the meantime, locals are celebrating by eating more moussaka than is medically advisable. 1985. On this day in 1985, Sir Clive Sinclair, the man who brought us the ZX Spectrum and a calculator that could only add up to 1,000, unveiled his latest creation, the Sinclair C5. Described as a cross between a child's tricycle and an ironing board, the C5 was designed for those who wanted to look like a twit whilst being run over. The vehicle, which was neither car nor bicycle, but rather a thing with three wheels, was ahead of its time, if you consider the Stone Age as cutting edge. The launch saw celebrities like Noel Edmonds and Thatcher herself hop aboard, only to be laughed off the road by passing donkeys. Despite its commercial failure, the C5 has become a cult collectible, presumably because it's so slow thieves can't steal it without getting cramp. Today they fetch upwards of 20 quid on eBay, or free with a packet of ready breck. So if you're looking for an impractical way to die, why not invest in a Sinclair C5? Just remember, helmet not included, but humiliation is guaranteed. In the time, some 1863. On this day in 1863, Londoners were plunged into darkness as the world's first underground railway system opened. The Metropolitan Railway, a.k.a. the Tube, burrowed its way from Paddington to Farringdon, creating a network of tunnels so labyrinthine that even today commuters are still trying to find their way out. The cutting-edge line connected three major stations, Paddington Bear, Euston and Hare Bear Bunch, and King's Cross Dresser. The aim? to transport Victorian strap-hangers away from the smoggy streets above and into the damp, rat-infested sewers below. One early passenger, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, said, It's like being on a roller coaster, but with more soot up your trousers. Others were less engineering in their praise. It's a train wreck, moaned one disgruntled commuter. I miss the days when I could be mugged in daylight. Despite teething problems, literally with rogue dentures on the tracks and delays due to ghostly apparitions at Farringtail Station, the underground was here to stay, for better or for worse mental. News Bang, 
The bang in news is the sound of truth exploding. And we're back. Joining us now is Shakanaka Giles, our meteorologist, to give us the lowdown on the frosty weather conditions across the UK. Mr Giles, what's the outlook for tomorrow? It's shivering time in most of the UK tomorrow. In the southeast, expect a brisk morning, a bit like biting into a chilly ice cream cone. The Midlands will be a bit like a frosty fairy tale, with temperatures dipping to 2 degrees. Make sure to wrap up warm, or you'll be shivering like a jelly in a freezer. Over in the north, it's a similar story, with a frosty touch that'll make you feel like you're walking through a winter wonderland. In summary, a frosty morning, a chilly day, and a shivering night. Stay warm, folks, and that's all the weather. Nineteen sixty-six. In a momentous diplomatic breakthrough, the Tashkent Declaration was inked in 1966, concluding the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965. This brutal conflict, with its thousands of casualties and the largest tank battle since World War II, was finally laid to rest. The Soviet Union and the United States intervened, leading to a ceasefire and the historic signing. The war's theatre stretched across Kashmir and the India-Pakistan border, engaging land, air and naval forces. And the story continues as we hand over to our correspondent, Brian Bastable, reporting from the front lines of history. From the scorched belly of hell, I speak to you now. A land ravaged by conflict, shattered by the shrapnel of war, where peace is a concept that exists only in the minds of the mad. This is a place where tanks tread on the remnants of dreams, where the screams of the dying are drowned out by the roar of engines, where the only law is the law of the jungle. Here the ground is stained with the blood of the innocent, the air is thick with the smell of cordite, and the horizon is a line drawn in the sand by the boots of the invaders. This is a place where men are reduced to animals, where the strong survive and the weak perish, where the only rule is survival. This is a place where the sound of gunfire is the soundtrack to life, where the only certainty is death, and where the only hope is the hope that one day this war will end. But until that day comes, I will be here reporting from the front lines, bringing you the stories of the brave men and women who fight and die for their countries, their homes and their lives. This is Brian Bastable, Newsbang, reporting from the heart of the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965. It is a situm, 2007. Guinea's in a state of upheaval as a general strike takes aim at President Lansana Conte. The allegations? Economic mismanagement, power abuse and a penchant for freeing corrupt individuals from the clutches of justice. Conte's been at the helm since 1984, but the people have had enough. The result? Two new prime ministers take the stage. The future of Guinea hangs in the balance. 
and to shed more light on this unfolding situation, we turn to our correspondent, Ken Shit. Greetings, you poor benighted souls. I am Ken Shit, your one and only field reporter, and tonight I'm here to bring you a tale of woe, corruption, and sheer bloody injustice from the steamy jungles of Guinea. It's 2007, folks, and the people of this godforsaken nation have had enough of their dictatorial president, Lansana Conte. This bloke has been running the show since 1984. That's longer than some of you have been alive. And now the people are rising up in a general strike to force him out once and for all. They accuse Conte of mismanaging the economy so badly that it makes Bernie Madoff look like Warren Buffett. They say he's abusing his authority like a schoolyard bully with a lunchbox full of whoopass. And worst of all, they claim he's letting corrupt individuals walk free from prison, as if justice itself is nothing more than a dirty word in this godforsaken land. The strike is getting results too. Two new prime ministers have been appointed to try and sort out this mess. But let's be honest here. Is anyone really expecting anything to change? This is Guinea we're talking about. A place where corruption runs deeper than the Amazon River and justice is as rare as a snow leopard in the Sahara Desert. So what can we do about it? Well folks, I don't have all the answers, but I do know one thing. We need to keep shining a light on these atrocities until something changes. Until then, we can only sit back and watch as another innocent nation gets torn apart by greed, corruption and tyranny. This is Ken Shit signing off for now. Remember kids, stay angry, stay informed, and never stop fighting for what's right. Because if we don't stand up for justice now, who will? 1946. In a monumental gathering of nations, the first session of the United Nations General Assembly convened in London, bringing together representatives from 51 member states. The Methodist Central Hall in London played host to this historic event as the UNJ assumed its responsibilities for the UN budget appointing non-permanent Security Council members and making recommendations through resolutions. The UN, now encompassing 193 sovereign states, provides equal representation to all members in the General Assembly. To delve deeper into the implications of this landmark assembly, we turn to our reporter, Hardeman Pesto. It's the first ever session of the United Nations General Assembly. I'm here in London at the Methodist Central Hall, the UN, as it was known back then, was only five years old. It was established in 1941 after the outbreak of World War II with the aim of preventing future global conflicts. Pesto, what's the big deal about this meeting? Well, the big deal is that this is the first time representatives from all 51 member states have come together to discuss global issues. But didn't they already do that in San Francisco in 1945? Yes but that was just the United Nations Conference on International Organization. This is the first actual session of the General Assembly. So what are they discussing? They're discussing the UN budget, appointing non-permanent Security Council members and making recommendations through resolutions. Sounds like a snooze fest. Well, it's not all dry business. There's also a lot of diplomatic manoeuvring and political posturing. Pesto, can you give us an example? Sure, just a moment ago, I saw the Soviet Union's delegate, Andrei Vyshinsky, having a heated argument with the U.S. delegate, Edward Stettinius Jr. About what? I couldn't quite make out what they were saying, but it looked like they were arguing about the composition of the Security Council. I bet they were. 
Pesto, what's the atmosphere like in the hall? It's a bit stuffy, to be honest. The air conditioning isn't working very well. That's not what I meant. I meant, what's the mood like? Oh, the mood is tense. There's a lot of tension in the air. Everyone is aware of the gravity of the issues being discussed. Pesto, do you think the UN has been successful in preventing global conflicts? Well, it's hard to say. There have been many conflicts since the UN was established. But it's also possible that things would have been worse without the UN. Pesto, thank you. Hardeman Pesto there, live from London. I'm still here, Martin. I know, Pesto. But we're moving on to the next segment. Oh, right. Sorry, Martin. No problem, Pesto. That's all from London. Wait, I have one more thing to say. What is it, Pesto? I just wanted to say that it's been a privilege to be here in London, covering the first session of the United Nations General Assembly. It's a historic moment, and I'm grateful to have been a part of it. And that was really worth interrupting for, was it? Sorry, Martin. Pesto, thank you. News bang. Firing a cannon of facts at the fortress of fiction. Penelope Windchime now, with matters environmental. Take it away, Penelope. Enviro Tales with me, Penelope Windchime. Cast your minds back to the year of 1917, when brave souls embarked on the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. A tale of icy endurance, where men were men and penguins were nervous. The Ross Sea Party, a group of frost-bitten heroes, set out to lay down supplies across the treacherous belly of Antarctica. They didn't cross the land as hoped, but they did cross into the annals of history, leaving behind more frozen food than a supermarket in a snowstorm. Fast forward to 1993, when Mother Nature threw a tantrum like no other. The Briar Storm, an extratropical cyclone with the breath of a thousand whales, huffed and puffed its way across the North Atlantic. With a central pressure so low it could limbo under a snake's belly, this meteorological monster whipped up waves that could give Poseidon himself a bubble bath. And there you have it, my eco-enthusiasts, two tales of human grit and nature's fit. Until next time, keep your hearts green and your gardens cleaner. I'm Penelope Windchime saying remember, every day is Earth Day if you wear enough patchouli oil. Next up, Polly Beep is here with the traffic and travel and her usual brand of nonsense. Step back in time, it's the glorious age of steam and wood-panelled carriages. If you're traversing the mighty Mississippi, you might just spot the magnificent steamship New Orleans. She's fresh from her maiden voyage, transporting pioneers, traders and wide-eyed dreamers. So hold on tight as she ploughs through the wild waters. However, the traffic in New Orleans is hectic, largely due to those shifty horse-drawn carriages that won't stick to their lanes. The steamboat captains aren't happy either. They're blaming the increasing congestion on the constant docking and undocking of the vessels. Over in the sophisticated underground world of the Metropolitan Railway, from the year 1863, it's clear that the Victorian engineers weren't taking traffic jams seriously. These days, trains don't seem to move, stuck like flies in honey at Paddington, Euston and King's Cross. And despite the railways being a shiny new invention, Farringdon Station, with its eerie echoes, still experiences regular traffic incidents. 
Keep an eye out for pioneering road safety initiatives like flag-waving dames at Paddington Station, or even more remarkably, baffled steam-powered automobiles lining up at the pump, waiting to top up on their wood fuel. The busy roads of the Mississippi and the rattling railway tunnels are buzzing with an eclectic mix of traders, merchants and adventurers, and the brave explorers of the year 1812 and 1863. So keep your wits about you, stay vigilant and prepare for unexpected delays. Until next time, Polly Beep will keep you posted on the quirky roads of yesteryear. 1985. Back now to the momentous launch of the Sinclair C5, in many ways the father of the Tesla of today. Calamity Prenderville takes us back to this day in 1985. Good evening, Newsbang viewers. It's time for your daily dose of British innovation, and boy do we have a treat for you. Today, we're taking a trip down memory lane to 1985, when Sir Clive Sinclair, the man who brought us the ZX Spectrum, unveiled his latest creation, the Sinclair C5. Now, imagine this, a one-person, battery-powered tricycle designed to revolutionise personal transportation. It was like a cross between a scooter and a car, or as Sinclair himself put it, a vehicle, not a car. The C5 was a marvel of British engineering, complete with a fibreglass body, a 12-volt battery, and a top speed of 15 miles per hour. It even had a horn, lights and indicators. It was the perfect vehicle for those short trips to the corner shop or the local pub. But alas, the C5 was not meant to be. Despite its innovative design, it was plagued by safety concerns and poor sales. It was criticized for its lack of protection in accidents and its inability to handle hills. However, the C5 didn't disappear without a fight. It became a cult collectible with enthusiasts snapping up the remaining stock. Today, it's a rare sight, but when you do see one, it's a reminder of the quirky, innovative spirit of British engineering. So here's to the Sinclair C5, a true British icon and a testament to the power of British innovation. Who knows what the future holds for our eccentric inventors? Only time will tell. This is Calamity Prenderville, signing off from Newsbang. Good night. <laughs> News bang, reality TV, but with facts aplenty. And we go over now to our sister station with Regal Regalier, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, and his tales of yore. Settle in, it'll all be over soon. Yeah, a very good evening to you all. Welcome, welcome, and thrice welcome to the Royal Corner of Newsbang Radio. I'm your old mate, Sandy O'Shaughnessy, and tonight we're taking a regal journey through the annals of time. So grab a cuppa, settle in, and let's wander through the past with a touch of humor and satire. Ah. <laughs> now let's travel back to 1430. It was a time when chivalry wasn't just for knights in shining armor, but also for those with deep pockets. Philip the Good established the Order of the Golden Fleece, an exclusive club for the rich and powerful. Think of it as a cross between a country club and an elite fraternity. And who was this Philip? Why, he was none other than the Duke of Burgundy. Ah. <laughs> a man who knew how to live large and leave his mark on history. 
I can just imagine him strutting around like J.R. Ewing at South Fork, surrounded by plush carpets and velvet curtains, while planning his next grand gesture. Ah. <laughs> but let's not get too carried away with our Burgundian fantasies just yet. We have another royal tale to tell, from 976 AD. The year Basil II became ruler of the Byzantine Empire after his guardian, John Shaitzimiskes, kicked the bucket. Now Basil was no ordinary emperor, he had quite a few tricks up his sleeve, or rather, under his cloak. Ah. <laughs> he expanded his empire like nobody's business and held on to power for an astonishingly long time, longer than any Roman emperor before him. The Byzantine Empire was like Rome's second coming, a powerful force that kept on going until it finally met its match in 1453. Ah. <laughs> and speaking of empires rising and falling, I received an intriguing letter from Geraldine in Dublin today. She writes, Dear Sandy, I found an old coin in my garden yesterday that has Victoria engraved on it, along with some Latin words I can't decipher. Is it worth anything? Well, Geraldine, that depends on whether you have any more garden gnomes lying around. Huh? <laughs> but seriously, folks, if you ever come across any ancient artifacts or mysterious coins, do send them my way. Who knows what stories they might tell. Huh? <laughs> so there you have it. Two tales from our royal archives that remind us that history is filled with larger-than-life characters who left their mark on the world in their own unique ways. Until we meet again in Tales and Tunes, remember to keep your eyes peeled for hidden treasures and garden gnomes as we continue our journey through time. All over the In a momentous event that would forever alter the trajectory of American industry, the Texas oil boom erupted in 1901, birthing a gusher of such magnitude in Spindletop, near Beaumont, that it flowed for nine unyielding days. This uncontrolled release of oil and gas heralded the dawn of the oil age in the United States, elevating Texas to the vanguard of oil production by 1940. Now, to delve into the intricacies of this monumental discovery, and its profound impact on the global energy landscape, we turn to our business correspondent, Perkins Stornoway. Today marks the 113th anniversary of the Spindletop oil boom. Dogger, slight, or moderate. The gusher, which blew for nine days, transformed Texas into a leading oil-producing state. Fastnet becoming poor. The blowout led the United States into the oil age, Shannon, occasionally rough. In the business world, Beaumont, West, backing Southwest, five or six is the largest municipality near the Louisiana border. Thames, fair, occasionally moderate. The Spindletop discovery is now a popular tourist attraction, drawing visitors from around the world. Rocal, West or Northwest, three or four. But the news isn't all oil and boom. Lundy, fair. In the world of finance, Texas-based Dusky Holdings, east, veering southeast, three or four saw a significant drop in share value. Cromarty, east or northeast, three or four. The Central Numerical Council, southwest, becoming cyclonic, 
5 or 6 is expected to introduce a new heavier 7. The currency markets saw the pound, a medium Susan, Dover, slight or moderate, performing well against other major currencies. Biscay, occasional rain. The yen surged while the mark, still floppy at 178.4.3 to a quarter. In conclusion, today marks a historic day in the oil industry, but the business world remains volatile. Fastnet, good, occasionally poor. Trafalgar, fair, occasionally moderate. The oil boom continues to shape the economic landscape, but only time will tell what the future holds for dusky holdings and the currency markets. Business. 1929. The year is 1929, and a star is born in the form of a young reporter named Tintin. In a daring expose, Tintin infiltrates the Soviet Union, only to find himself pursued by the secret police. The comic series, The Adventures of Tintin, created by Belgian cartoonist Herge, quickly becomes a global sensation, selling over 200 million copies in more than 70 languages. Herge's distinct drawing style and captivating storytelling have cemented his legacy in comic history. Smithsonian Moss has more on the enigmatic creator and his groundbreaking work. Now at this point of the evening we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho, Newsbang Nation. It's your girl Smithsonian Moss, and I am here to bring you the latest and greatest in culture. Today, we're taking a trip back in time to the Roaring Twenties, where the world was just a little bit more glamorous, a little bit more dangerous, and a whole lot more fabulous. So, buckle up, kiddos, because we're about to dive headfirst into the world of Tintin in the land of the Soviets. That's right, folks. We're talking about the first volume of The Adventures of Tintin, a series of comic albums created by the legendary Belgian cartoonist, Herge. Now let me tell you, this ain't your mama's comic book. This is the OG, the granddaddy of all comic books, the one that started it all. It's like the Hunger Games of comic books, but with more intrigue, more danger, and more Russian accents. So what's the story, you ask? Well, let me tell you, it's a doozy. We've got our hero, Tintin, a young reporter with a penchant for adventure and a dog named Snowy, who's just as badass as he is. Together, they're sent to the Soviet Union to report on the government. And let me tell you, it's like the Wolf of Wall Street of the Soviet Union. But of course, things don't go as planned, and Tintin quickly finds himself in hot water with the Soviet secret police. It's like the Ocean's Eleven of the Soviet Union, but with more espionage and less George Clooney. Now let's talk about the man behind the magic, Herge. This guy was like the Tarantino of comic books, but with a whole lot more facial hair and a whole lot less swearing. He created not only the adventures of Tintin, but also other comic series, each with its own unique style and flair. So there you have it, Newsbang Nation. Tintin in the Land of the Soviets, a classic comic book that's still as fresh and exciting today as it was back in the Roaring Twenties. It's like the Game of Thrones of comic books, but with more intrigue and less dragons. That's all for now, folks. Keep it locked on Newsbang for more culture updates, and don't forget to tune in tomorrow for our special report on whether the moon landing was faked or not. Until then, stay fabulous, my friends. Waho. Newsbang, taking the scalpel to the myths of the ages. 236.
In the realm of the divine, Pope Fabian ascended to the papal throne, guided by the ethereal wisdom of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, a central figure in Christianity, is considered the third person of the Trinity. Delving into the intricacies of the Holy Spirit's nature is the study of pneumatology. The Holy Spirit assumes various names across diverse scriptures, adding layers of complexity to its theological interpretation. Now, to discuss the Holy Spirit's role in Pope Fabian's election, we turn to our religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. The producer just slipped me a note informing me that today marks the anniversary of Pope Fabian's ascension to the papacy way back in 236 AD, chosen by the Holy Spirit, no less. Which got me thinking about the Holy Spirit and all his different names over the years. The Paraclete, the Comforter, the Heavenly Dove, the Lord and Giver of Life. Though Old Slippery was always my favourite. Reminds me of a parish priest I once knew, Father Patrick O'Houlihan. As a student of pneumatology, that's the study of spirits for you lay people, he took it upon himself to assign each member of his congregation a unique spirit name based on their personality. Old Mrs. <laughs> McGillicuddy became impatient whirlwind. Young Rory was dubbed Precocious Lightning Bolt, and yours truly was christened Tipsy Firecracker though I confess the name was well earned after one too many communions of the sacramental wine variety. <laughs> well, one Sunday as Father O'Houlihan was baptising wee baby Michael, he racked his brain but couldn't think of an apt spirit name for the child, so he just baptised him to be decided, until inspiration struck. But inspiration never did strike. For years, the poor lad was known as to be decided, even after he'd grown to adulthood. He even had it monogrammed on his briefcase when he became a tax attorney. <laughs> Finally, after decades of indecision, Father O'Houlihan declared he would assign a proper spirit name at Sunday Mass. The congregation waited with bated breath, and to be decided became dithering indecisive procrastinator. Well, old to be decided stormed out in a right huff, never to darken the church's doors again leaving Father O'Houlihan to sadly scratch dithering indecisive procrastinator off the parish registry. <laughs> I suppose the moral is, don't leave to the spirit world that which you can decide yourself, unless, of course, you fancy being known as Tipsy Firecracker for all eternity, in which case, bottoms up, and may the Holy Spirit guide you in all its slippery dithering firecracking forms. <laughs> And finally, a quick gander at tomorrow's front page headlines. The Times. Fort in Arkansas falls to Union Army. The Independent. Georgia students protest racial integration. The Express. Mafia critic shot dead in New York. Today, drought claims thousands of sheep in Yorkshire. And the Mirror. Little Miss Clumsy wins largest pig in Britain. That's it. A quiet night in London. We had a man who went out with a fishing rod and came back with a live eel. That's the most excitement we've had here tonight. This is Newsbang saying good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.